Lord. Praise God. Good morning. So let's start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful morning to be here together, only under your grace, only under your mercy that we're led by you to be here, called to be here, to be your children as one body to worship you and to celebrate our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the victory that lives on in all of us here and the calling that you call us to be, to spread to the whole world. Lord, allow us to continue to be filled with your glory, to be filled with your mercy, to overflow with your love, that this morning we get to worship you with all of our hearts. We get to see your kingdom, the value of it. And Lord, allow us to respond to that kingdom with our hearts. Would you give us open eyes and minds so that we get to see who you are and just how much you love us this morning and forever. Once again, we thank you and we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I would like to start this morning by sharing my uh, convert, conversion story. Um, uh, I became a believer after I met my wife. Um, I'm not talking about Jesus, I'm talking about MacBook. I become a believer of <laughs> Apple. Uh, after I met my before I was an avid PC person. Uh, I meant by a very vocal, active uh, fighter against Apple products. I thought it was the pinnacle of the lazy consumerism. And I said, too expensive. This is evil. You know, this is sinful. And then I met my wife. I loved everything about her. Such uh, graceful character and quality and funny, witty, but she owned the MacBook. Uh, one flaw. Um, so with my disguised uh, humility, I approached her. I said, how, why did you, how did you get to come across such uh, expensive, uh, luxurious <laughs> vanity as you spend so much money? And as a woman of wisdom, of course, she saw right through me. Uh, she said, have you ever used one? So I said, I don't need to, to know how horrible it is. It's a scam. She said, try it. It took me months to even click the pad. And when I did, although I have to admit the clicking was quite satisfying, I said, look, oh, it doesn't even have a right click. Look at that. It's a scam. How, would you, how do you manage everything else? Look at how bad that is. What got me to try it out a little more genuinely was when I saw how her old MacBook, very old MacBook, completely outliving my much newer PC laptop. I bought a brand new one. Three years later, it just died on me. And we didn't do it. I cherished it. It died on me while the MacBook thrived. So I said, something must be going on. So as my beloved PC, I did a farewell to it. I said, I'll give it a try. So I got a MacBook. And ever since then, I became a believer of Apple. <laughs> I, hopefully you understand that I'm not, uh, I'm not advocating Apple products. Uh, it's a hotly debated product. But just before I knew what it felt like, before I experienced it, 
I thought it was just overpriced. The value was overpriced. Now, as I constantly encounter such powerful proficiency and such sophisticated simplicity, faithfully empowering me to do everything I can in the name of God, it isn't expensive anymore. I see the value. It's worth everything. Again, you can debate. Yes, PC is great. But thankfully, today's passage is less debatable. We see a better product. We see a better thing. The kingdom of heaven. I'm, I'm not daring to compare the Apple product to kingdom of heaven. But what I'm saying is, until you experience it, you don't know. But once you encounter it, once you get to know and see and feel what it is, you get to see the value of it, and that changes you. That changes you. So let's take a look at two people uh, by, uh, told by Jesus uh, in parable how such encounter changed their lives. For the last two weeks, Pastor Bill preached on the gospel of Mark about what it means to be citizens of another kingdom. And we saw how the kingdom of heaven confronts us and how Jesus brings us such kingdom to us. And last week, we saw how the kingdom grows both internally and externally throughout the world from such small state, like a seed, to an eternally great size and dimension. Today's passage comes from two parables from Matthew 13, and we get to see what our appropriate response to such kingdom. As we encounter such kingdom, how do we respond? Today's passage contains two parables, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value. This is simply how they go. Since they're quite short, let me just read the whole passage again. Verse 44 through 46, let me read that. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The commentators do agree uh, to say that these parables, just like the previous parables in Matthew about uh, hidden le uh, leaven and mustard seed, they're not necessarily provided with great extensive description of the narrative. Who were they? Uh, what kind of scenery was that? They're just simple. And that's probably because they were spoken to the disciples who already knew the meaning. When they heard it, they knew the context. They knew what it entailed. One thing I would like to do is to see some patterns in the two parables. There are five patterns that happen quite equally uh, to have uh, appeared in the parables. First is this. There is the reference to something very valuable. The reference to something very valuable. And then those two figures find it. They find it. Third, they go. Fourth, they sell everything that they have. And lastly, they buy it. Both the treasure finder and the merchant go through this. The message from these parables can be quite simple. The value of the kingdom of heaven is so great that when you get to encounter it, you can't help but to sell everything and buy it. In other words, it's worth everything. 
Now, but in order to make this message more applicable and speak more powerfully to our daily lives, we've got to dive deeper into the passage. I'd like to take us to three parts of the parables. I see three E's. One is error. And then we see the encounter. And then the third, the effect. The error is that we look for the wrong things. And then the second, the encounter is that then we find the treasure. Third, the effect is when we encounter it, the effect of the encounter is that the life, that what the life looks like after the gospel is completely different from the past. So first, the error. We look for the wrong things. Surely the text uh, doesn't per- extensively describe about how things happened, right? Where were they? Uh, what kind of people were they? The first parable says just a man. A man found something. Second parable does identify the figure as a merchant. But without a nice background information about this story, the parable both start at the very point where they find the treasure and the pearl. It starts there. So we don't get to see where they come from, what it was like. But I do believe it may be necessary for us to stop here just before they find the treasure because the moment up to this point, just before the encounter, that part actually speaks something about us. Just before finding the treasure, where were they? As we see how both of them find something with such value, we know that until this point of such encounter, they haven't seen such a thing. They haven't found something like that. This is a theme that the Bible talks about quite often, how we look for things that are actually wrong things in life. We do that. We can't find the treasure. That's what Psalm 14 told us. The psalmist says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They, are, they do abominable deeds. There is, no, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. And if you remember Romans 3, it's repeated there in the New Testament. In this totally depraved state, we are incapable of seeking the one and only right thing that we should have been looking for, God. That was one and only thing, the purpose of life, the essence of life. God, but no one seeks after God. We seek for something else. We seek for everything else, just anything else than God. Isn't that the heart of sin? That's what we call idolatry, trying to fill that gap that's supposed to be filled with God himself and to try to fill it with something else. It isn't too hard to relate to that idea in finding ourselves in such pursuit of the treasure that something may quench our eternally unquenchable thirst. I caught myself doing that thing when I was scrolling aimlessly through the Netflix channel where I could not find what satisfies my desire. I was looking for that next show that would be the show, the movie. I was going through it. And the irony is, there are so many. And it says, suggested for you, right? It seems like it knows me. And yet, I see everything. Read the description, trailer, and even find it, watch it. And you you know that feeling. 
I wasn't that great. You know that. So that, you know, having to go through that, you see yourself just aimlessly scrolling through and say, what am I doing? Nothing here is good. Another example is um, I recently got into um, thrifting, a beautiful culture in America where uh, um, I found this amazing place at Lansdale, and this was the gold mine. They had DVDs for $1.50. I won't name the place because I might be tempting you to go there. <laughs> Blu-ray for $3. It's ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I, right, I hit the jackpot. I think I bought about 20, 30 DVDs in that place. No, every good stuff. Every good stuff that I could not afford. I said, look at that, open it up. No scratch. $1.50. I filled the whole bookshelf with it. Uh, the horrible part, I haven't watched anything yet. It's been a while since I had it. My wife does lovingly mock me, saying how much bigger is the bookshelf is going to be. But the example is that my DVDs couldn't satisfy me. I'm pretty sure you could relate to such experience where you look for something quite extensively, purposefully, thinking that that would satisfy your thirst. And then you wait for it, you yearn it. What is it? Is it the vacation that you were looking for? Only to, to come back and say, was it that great? Sure, that was great, but was it that great? Is it the experiences that you look for? Is it in relationships that you look to find such value? What is it? Money? Career? Family? It's unfortunate that we get to experience that same thing. That says, that, that, that wasn't enough. Maybe there's something else. I'm sure you look forward to something. And when you get it, you feel that. Isn't it a common experience that fail us? Have you felt that emptiness? Just take this moment to reflect on that. What is it that your heart frantically looks for? The treasure that you're looking for. And how have they failed you? I believe that's the context to where we get to second point, the encounter to the treasure, the valuable treasure. We, it, the text says, then they find it. Then they find it. But it's actually how the treasure finds us, if you think about it. The two men in today's parable both find the treasure and the pearl of great value. So let's look at those encounters. Treasure hidden in a field. It says a man found a treasure hidden in a field. A field. First of all, it's hard to relate to that, right? First of all, we don't dig that much in our lives. If you do, probably your garden and you don't look for treasure. And if you do, somehow, I don't know, a marble, then you say, huh, who does, it, who does this belong to? You ask that question because we live in a generation where the entitlement, a legal entitlement as well as psychological entitlement is at its peak in the history, at the point of history, where everything is owned. I don't know if you've heard uh, that people are, the, these days, they're buying lands in the moon. Did you know that? Maybe you should. No, you shouldn't, because <laughs> there is not, the treasure isn't in the moon. The text tells us today. But back then, 
this was actually not too uncommon to find valuable things in the ground. Because, think about it, they, uh, they didn't have uh, Wells Fargo, so they couldn't store stuff safely. And to feel safe, when they gain wealth, when they obtain a large amount of wealth, jewelry, gold, whatever it is, what do they do? They fear because what if people come and rob them? That happened quite frequently. So what do they do? They hide it under the ground. And then they mark it on a map. They share it with their family. But what happens if they forget to share that? Or worse, uh, they all die before sharing that to the next person, which happened quite often. And what happens? It's hidden in the ground. And no one knows where it is. Hence, the treasure hunt. It's not too fictional when we hear about those treasure hunts. It was historical. Things happened. In fact, that was quite common in the middle, ancient Middle East. Whole generation just gaining that, to lose that. And next, and next generation, some random figures finding those things. And by that time, no one owns that. So this was something that disciples understood. But what about pearls, though? That we could understand. Pearls, right? It's hard to relate to seeing the value of a pearl, even if it's a genuine one, because we see that um, in any jewelry, local jewelry store anywhere here, right? We could Google it in Google Map. Or worse, we could order it on Amazon. We live in the future where we lost that value, kind of. Now, um, in historically, though, pearls were actually as much as, if not greater than, the value of gold. They were a sign of prestige. They were a sign of wealth. It was valued highly. So that's what it represents. All that is to say that these two men found something very valuable. Very valuable. In fact, something so valuable that it was worth everything that they owned. They were eager to sell everything to buy that. Now, in this second point, I would like us to focus on that part where they both encounter the treasure. Both parts make it seem like almost the encounter was accidental. When we don't see such seven points to approach and find treasure, how to find such pearl of great value, we don't see that, but they come across it. It almost seems like the treasure and the pearl came to them. That is how the kingdom of heaven works, though. If you remember Pastor Bill's sermon two weeks ago, it is the kingdom of heaven that comes to us. It is Jesus Christ who brings that to us. He doesn't just say, it'll come in the future. It's, he says, it's here. It's here. We encounter that. Now, here's the, I believe, the crazy part of this parable where this pearl, this treasure, isn't even an object in our application. The kingdom of heaven is not even an object. It's a person. Jesus Christ is that treasure, that value, so highly valued that everything else becomes worthless. It's that person. And don't you remember how Jesus is the one that approached you? He's the one who reaches out to find you. He's the one. He's the first evangelizer to us. He evangelizes the gospel, the good news to us, saying, believe in me. He is the one who approached the Samaritan woman at the well. 
He is the one who came to the disciples and said, follow me. He's the one who came to us with the message and said, would you believe me? Because I've already paid for you. That's how he found us. If you're a Christian, then you know that the gospel came to you. Where did it come from? And for those who are struggling to look for the wrong things, that's the good news, isn't it? When we fail to find him, he finds us. The kingdom comes to us. And the crazy part is this is not a one-time deal. As he finds us, kingdom finds us continually, every day. The gospel comes to you every day. So the question is, how does it come to you every day? How does the good news approach you every day? How does it convict you of who Jesus is and what he's done? Where do you see that? Then we get to ask the appropriate response to such encounters. That's the third point. With that encounter that comes to us, how do we respond? Our response is that our lives look like, what our, what our lives look like after the gospel seems completely different. Verse 44, when the man found the treasure hidden in the field, he covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, if you're like me, just wondering, was it okay for him to hide it back? What about, shouldn't, he, shouldn't he have reported it, right? If you're wondering that, I don't think you're alone because I, even the rabbis asked that. They had a hot debate about that. But commentators do agree that that wasn't the point of the parable. It's not the point. The point is, it's okay to understand that because back then, remember, the owner of the field didn't actually own the treasure. No one knew that. No one knew the existence of it. In our land, probably that's quite tricky. But you didn't see how that person, it says, in great joy, dug up everything and just fled in joy. That didn't happen. What did he do? He hid it back again. He carefully went back to earn it, to buy it legally. And that happened. And back then, that was fair. Verse 45 to 6 Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So in both cases of the encounter of the kingdom, they respond with going, selling, and buying it. So what does this show? What does this tell us? Um, when Jesus tells us this parable, saying that this, the kingdom of heaven, is like these things. He means that the kingdom has value that is so high that when the person encounters it, has to sell everything to gain it because after that, that's the most valuable thing in life. A commentator puts it pretty beautifully here, where the kingdom of heaven is valuable to those who find them. Like a hidden treasure on, or a pearl that can be held in one's hand, the kingdom is known only to its joyful possessors. Yet those who find the kingdom, i.e. who receive the message and who respond in discipleship, have begun to experience the wonder of the kingdom's presence. They know that the kingdom is a reality that is worth everything. When we encounter the kingdom of heaven, when we meet Jesus Christ, 
everything we previously held onto becomes meaningless. Wasn't that the confession of Paul in Philippians 3? He said it in verse 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The flip side of that is it means that following Jesus costs everything that we have, everything that we are. What was the response of the disciples when Jesus called them? When Jesus came to them and said, now follow me, what did they do? They dropped everything. They followed Jesus Christ with joy. That's actually a powerful comment there that we need to not overlook. They loved it because they saw what it was. In his joy, remember when that guy found that treasure, in his joy. When disciples were called to serve Jesus Christ, were they saying, I guess I have to. This guy's calling me. But what about my net that I knit all my life? What about my fish? Oh, well, we'll have to see what happens. No, they dropped everything in joy. They loved Jesus. That's actually the part of response to the encountering the treasure. Joy in following the kingdom. But that's the question that actually rings pretty loudly to my heart. I'm pretty sure a lot of you. When you think about following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, do you have joy? Are you happy? All the time. If you're like me, we get to actually answer too often, not really, not too often. Not too joyful, too often. If that's you, you should get the checked out. Just as I should get the checked out. Just ask why. One reason can be maybe you don't see the value as it is. Maybe I don't get to see just how great Jesus is in my life when it gets to my today. Or maybe the things that I must sell because it's lost its value, maybe it's actually kind of a little more valuable than it should be. Oh, but that's so expensive. Can't let go of that. I love that. If you truly know the value of Jesus Christ, the value of kingdom of heaven, we're leaping with joy, and yet why am I not all the time? Now, an encouraging part is that this isn't a one-time deal only. Although this passage does talk about a quite decisive one-time deal scene where they, when saw, seeing the value, they sold everything, they bought it. It ends with them buying it, acquiring it. The kingdom is theirs. So it's not just about it's coming, it's theirs. So sure, it's there. When you believe in Jesus Christ, when you let go of those things, and when you say, I love you now, I will now follow you. When you're saved, you're always saved. It's a one-time deal. At the same time, it's a gradual process. A decision, a decisive thing versus a gradual process. Both happens where you continuously find yourself 
to sell and to return to Christ. As you encounter the gospel, once you know Jesus, seeing how this part hasn't been given to Jesus Christ, you give it again. That's every day as you repent again and again. It's a gradual process. That's a hopeful message to us. Now in this both decisive and gradual process, there's something else to note here. There's something that needs to have happened before these two men who found pearl and treasure. They joyfully went and sold everything to buy the treasure. What happened in that moment? It is the fact that they knew the value in order to be able to do that. Did you think about that? How did they get to joyfully sell everything? Because they knew the value. They knew what it was worth. Knowing the value of what you're supposed to love is actually crucial in loving something and treasuring it. An example uh, I found from my son uh, quite recently, where recently he is going to a phase, through a phase where the weight of death has dawned on him finally, where he realized that we're going to die. And that hit him too heavily every night. And of course, on the other end, I think it's a great excuse for him to just cry. Of course, he's scared, but he says, Mommy, I don't want you to die. And like, he's serious. He's actually wailing. And my wife says, well, and then she does a quite underhanded job of evangelism and say, hey, 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 uh, that's why it's so great to believe in Jesus. We get to see each other back in heaven. <laughs> we did talk quite often about how to bring that about, but he does it almost every day these days. And every time we're saying, hey, our chance to believe in Christ and believe in that eternal, um, just never goodbye. And then one night, Sean said this when she gave all that evangelism spiel. He said, Mommy, the truth is, he starts with those things these days. The truth is, I don't love God, but I say that I do because I want to see you in heaven. He says, I don't love him because I don't know him. That was powerful to us, the level of honesty. I feel like we learned a lot from his powerful um, trust in us and being so vulnerable to that honesty. When I think it's kind of rare to see that in us adults. When, when we see ourselves just lacking in loving Christ, just passionately enjoying his presence, a lot of times it is because we're forgetting who he is. Maybe we don't even know him that well. But to see him say that was a powerful wake-up call for us. Knowing somebody is kind of required in order to rightly love the figure, love the person. But at the same time, I think this is where our decisive as well as gradual thing actually comes together in loving somebody, by knowing somebody. Because he actually doesn't have that problem by, uh, with, with loving me. He actually is quite genuine, quite vocal about how much he loves me. He says, Daddy, I love you. And then it, it seems real every time he finds all these toys, things to do. Uh, but he says, but daddy, um, you should be here because that's how I enjoy this. Without you, I don't enjoy this because I love you. And probably it wasn't as elaborate as that, but um, he says that. 
Uh, and th there was one time where he did say, Daddy, uh, I, I love those things. I think it was Lego where he recently got into it. And he said, Daddy, I, I love Lego, but it's, I don't like it because you're not there with me. And I said, oh. <laughs> At the same time, that was, that was true. On one hand, he actually doesn't know me that well, right? He doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't know who I am as much as my wife. But I don't question the genuinity of his love for me. It's true. I think it's because he knows what he needs to know in order to love me. He knows that I am his father. He knows that I love him more than he loves me. He knows that I will do whatever I can to protect him, provide him, to provide him enjoyment, um, security, everything. But he can't, I can't say he loves me as much as my wife does because my wife just is more mature <laughs> and he knows me, she knows me more. But at the same time, I believe that both of them do love me. Um, sure, how, how dare I compare my family's love to me to the Heavenly Father, but at the same time, I do believe it's an imperfect yet a glimpse of our Heavenly Father providing such information that He comes to us and says, I love you. I am the Father. I am the Creator of Heaven. I am the powerful, almighty God, and I came to save you, and I'm right here. Why don't you love me? I think that's enough to love him. At the same time, there is that gradual process, and in fact, an eternal process where we get to learn about him. And our level of love grows and grows and grows even more than the beginning. And I'm pretty sure you could attest to that. As you see right now, if you love Jesus Christ right now, and if you remember the moment you started to love Jesus Christ, it changed. Same love, but degree is different, isn't it? Love him more. Let me end with this question, so. Have you found the pearl? Have you found the treasure? Have you found the kingdom of heaven? Or better yet, has Jesus Christ found you? Has he come to you? If he did, did you get to sell everything because you were so thrilled, because you got to see who he was, because he was far more valuable than everything we had? How are you there? Now, to those who may be discouraged by such idea of just letting go of things that we may cherish a bit too much, a daily struggle, which is everybody, I believe. There's such a gracious message of hope in the gospel. Just the chapters before in Matthew's, this is what Jesus already said. In Matthew chapter 6, 33, he said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added onto you. You see, the focus isn't about those things being added onto us. It's about the fact that we look at what's more important, kingdom of heaven. And it's, isn't it gracious that he doesn't say, despite the fact that you won't get those things, still follow me. He says, no, things will follow. In fact, you will be joyful. You will feel secure. You will be at peace. In fact, a peace that you've never experienced before. You just don't know it if you don't follow me. What a beautiful, powerful, and challenging message of the gospel. Why is it so valuable? Why is the kingdom of heaven so valuable? 
I think it's a, a necessary, a beneficial thing to ponder upon. Why did Jesus say kingdom of heaven is so valuable? In other words, why is there such value in who Jesus is and what he's done? A lot of things we can do. One of the things is very secularly almost. What do we get out of that? What we actually get out of that is infinitely greater sense of love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness. All the materials that even the world says is good, um, we get better there. But better yet, we get the person himself. We get to be with the one, the one true love that we were meant to be with eternally. We get to be with that figure. I told you beginning of the story, my story of my conversion to MacBook, and although that was quite um, bad, silly example of uh, finding the treasure, I think maybe say similarly bad, but a little better than that would be finding my wife. Uh, no offense, because uh, just because Jesus is greater than my wife, but it, my wife is better than MacBook. What I mean by that is, <laughs> very recently, fairly recently. I remember this moment. I came to realize something. It was like an enlightenment to me at that moment. I even, it was so monumental that I even remember the whole, this whole scene where I was walking into my house. I remember just being completely stressed out with finals and sermons that I have to preach, and I had other jobs to do. And then I was coming in to be the father of my two children. And a lot of jobs piling up, right? And I was stressing out, or I, at least I thought I was stressing out. And as I actually held that key to my key holder, and as I saw or sensed the presence of my wife there, I realized something. I realized that, huh, I wasn't that stressed, actually. I thought I was. I told myself I was. But, and that came from my very sinful scenario that I was drawing, the fantasizing of what if everything goes bad? What if I fail every class? And what if uh, ridiculous things that would never happen would happen on the pulpit? What if other crazy things happen? Oh, no. And then in that, to that response, I realized that, huh, those things won't affect my wife loving me. And that hit me. And I told my wife, honey, I, I'm okay now. Because sure, those are stressful, but I know those, those won't hurt you loving me. And that was a big realization that the dimension was different. Because I had that, I felt safe. And then she responded, no, yeah, still study, please. Do your job. Yeah. Do your job. Um, yes, of course. That's what Jesus says too, you know. I love you, but do your job. But the point isn't that. But point is the fact that it's a different dimension. The value is different. The worth is different. Because the love that I am assured from my wife it's just different worth of what I would look into in other people's approval from my studies, my sermons, those things. Those are incomparable to the joy that I have with my wife. And there it is. That I had with my wife is also incomparable to what we're given with in Christ. Christ is just infinitely greater than anything around us, any other thing, the love he provides, the security that he provides, the power that he endows us with, the joy 
they are valuable more than anything in our lives. So can we ask the question, did Jesus find you? Isn't kingdom of heaven just precious to see how it's more valuable than anything? Isn't it more valuable than gold or silver or just anything else? And the next point is that it overflows. It doesn't stop with us. Remember how the pearl, the merchant bought it by selling everything. It was actually intentionally ridiculous because people don't do that. He was a merchant. He knew the value. People don't buy those small things. It was supposed to be almost foolish to the readers. And that's what Jesus says. To those who don't know the value, it is foolish. For those who haven't met Jesus Christ, it is foolish. But once you know it, it's everything you have, everything that you want. In fact, God uses such foolishness to other people. When others see that, what are you doing? That's weird. You're a fool. And as you continue to provide such love and relationship and say, no, come join me. And they say, what's going on? Why are they doing that? That's so radically different than where I'm headed. What do they have? And praise God, Jesus finds them. He saves us. He comes to us. So we do have that calling to share such value to other people and say, look at that. Ironically, we don't hide it anymore. We share that to others and say, would you buy this? Would you enjoy this together with me? So I hope and I do pray that that becomes our confession. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. Let me end with that. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let's pray. Father, it's a blessing for us to know the value of the kingdom and to know that the kingdom finds us to know that it is Jesus Christ himself who comes to us to do what we cannot do. Thank you for such gift. Would you allow us to respond with a total submission to you with joy? Convince us, Lord, and let us continue to walk with you delightedly as you allow us to repent continuously and to turn to you every day. Let us grow more in our knowledge of you, in the conviction of the value of the kingdom, let us continue to sell all we have that is just far less valuable than who you are and what you have, what you have done. Let us be filled with such joy that allows us to share such treasure with others. We praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.